Welcome to the Battlefield Baptist Church Podcast. We are so glad you joined us and pray that this message is a blessing to you today. The B-I-B-L-E, yes, that's the book for me, is the name of this week's sermon. Join us in Psalm 19. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Psalm 19 this morning. I'm going to speak fast. The hour is upon us. It is 11.39 and 7 seconds. Not that I'm looking at the clock or anything, but if you'll listen fast, I will try to speak fast this morning. Look with me in Psalm 19, and I've got some encouraging news for you this morning. I want to speak to you, and you can go ahead and throw up the title slide. I want to speak to you this morning on the B-I-B-L-E. Yes, that's the book for me. Notice with me in Psalm chapter 19. In verse number 7 and following, the Bible says, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making the wise, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover by them is thy servant warned, and in keeping of them there is great reward. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to gather this morning. And certainly I pray that you'll speak through me in such a way that lives will be changed today. God, I pray that my declaration would be the declaration of everybody in this room and those that may be listening through podcast or otherwise. That the B-I-B-L-E, yes, your holy word, that we would make that book a part of our everyday lives and that we would value it and that we would treasure it in such a way that certainly we would see our lives become different. Father, I pray that people will be obedient to your word today. I pray that people will follow the Lord in believers' baptism. Even people who may have come here not planning to do so, God, I pray that they will step out in obedience and do that. I pray that their love for thee will guide them. God, I pray also for the person who maybe their heart is a little bit hard. God, that you would soften their heart with the good news of the testimony of Scripture that we just read. And God, how your word is such a blessing in our lives. God, I pray that through everything that's said or done, that you'll have your will in your way, and we'll give you the praise for it in Jesus' precious name and for his sake. Amen and amen. This morning, I want to talk to you about the B-I-B-L-E. Yes, that's the book for me. And, and I just believe that as Christians, our doctrines and our distinctives are those things that actually define who we are and what we believe more than anything else. You see, probably the most important distinctive that I could think of when it comes to being a Baptist, or even as a Christian, nonetheless, is the fact that this book, the B-I-B-L-E, is to be our sole authority. It's to be the supreme standard. Not everybody agreed with that, but it's supposed to be our sole authority and our supreme standard by which we live. In fact, guys, 
Without the Bible, I dare say we might as well just go on down the Route 29 Northside and get brunch. Because see, the Bible speaks of a God who loved us so much that he sent his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The Bible tells us a lot about our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. In fact, from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21, man, we see the message of Jesus wrapped and intertwined all through scriptures. And so it's a wonderful thing, but when I think of, uh, you know, the Bible, I think of other church backgrounds. And listen, this is not a message on denominations, but when I think of uh, the Lutherans, they turn to Martin Luther, right? They turn to Martin Luther as their founder, and actually their clergy must be willing, and they must sign the Osberg Confession in order to be ordained into the Lutheran faith. Uh, the Methodist Church, when I think of the Methodists, uh, I was born and raised in the Methodist Church. The Methodist Church, uh, they turned to John Wesley as their founder. And they also agree to the Methodist disciplines. The Presbyterian Church, we all know, they uh, assert John Calvin as their founder. And they subscribe to the Westminster Confession of Faith. And so we see these different denominational backgrounds uh, uh, adhering to certain church leaders. In fact, I think of the official document, uh, documentation of the Episcopalian Church or the Church of England is the 39 Articles in which they agree with. And so these other church denominations have different founders and different things uh, that they put their trust and faith in. But as Christians, as Bible-believing, and yes, the sign out on the church says Battlefield Baptist Church, but let me tell you, Baptists ain't getting you to heaven. Let me say it again, just so everybody knows. Baptist is not getting you to heaven, and it's not getting me to heaven. The only one that's taken... This guy to heaven is Jesus. Because Jesus said he was the way, the truth, and the life. And no man goes to the Father but by him. And so we understand the, uh, the perspective of being a Baptist. But here's the thing. Baptists, we are different. Because we have no founder other than Jesus. Did you know that? A lot of people didn't even know that. A lot of people that I talked to, they're like, What? What? No, the Baptist, our founder is Jesus and Jesus Christ only. Listen, we have no confession or creed to adhere to. Our sole authority is the inspired, inerrant, infallible word of God. No human opinions or decrees or creeds can usurp the authority of God's word. In fact, over the years, Baptists have actually been known. This is crazy. Maybe you've heard this before. Baptists have actually been known as people of the book the bible that's right baptists have been known as people of the book the bible what an eye-opener it is to me the fact that many people when they are asked in fact if you go out on the street if we were to go out and take an assessment if i was to go out on the street and ask people they would actually say that they believe the bible is the final authority in every church but folks that's not so that's why it's very important where we decide to worship as people. That's why it's very important, men, how you lead your families and where you have your families to worship. It's not so in every church. Listen, in many churches, what I want you to know, in many churches, tradition has become their authority. In fact, last week I talked to you about worship. You remember? And I said that that was true of the scribes and Pharisees of Jesus' day. 
In fact, as we were discussing worship last week, I reminded everybody we were looking uh, at Matthew chapter 15. I was reminding you that the scribes and Pharisees were not teaching what thus saith the Lord. They were guilty, Jesus said, of teaching what thus saith tradition. See, they were teaching their traditions uh, and their beliefs and practices. Even then were in many cases uh, given higher priority than God's word. What they had at that time. Their traditions actually became more important than what they had. And you'll remember that I said that you and I, even in our worship, we're going to make a choice. We're either going to be directed by the word of God or we're going to allow the traditions of men to rule us. Listen, if we're not careful, even here at Battlefield Baptist Church, if we're not careful, we can allow tradition to actually take precedence over the word of God. And folks, that never ought to be so. We need to be very careful. And I, as the pastor, have to be very careful that I'm not leading out of, a, out of a sense of tradition versus the Word of God. And some people say, well, you're starting to scare me. Well, the reason we get scared is because we like following what man says versus what God says many times. By the way, I used to sit right where you sit today. I wasn't always uh, a pastor. And so we have to be careful. Tradition has become the authority. I think of one example of tradition. And listen, this is not a condemnation. This is just a point, put out a point. I think of one uh, example of tradition winning in churches is within the Catholic Church. They're teaching on purgatory. Now, let me just tell you folks, even though purgatory is never alluded to in the canon of Scripture... Purgatory is never alluded to, even in the non-canonical documents, the Apocrypha. It's not alluded to there. It's not alluded to in God's Word. The Catholic Church continues to spread this inaccurate teaching. And there's many people who will follow it. In fact, you may be here this morning, you may be from a Catholic background, and you'd be saying, how dare he talk bad about purgatory? Well, folks, I will tell you, you show it to me in Scripture. Show it to me in the Apocrypha. And then we could have a discussion about it. It's an inaccurate teaching. And yet they continue to teach it because, not because it's accurate, but because it is tradition. It is a form of tradition that they teach. I think also the Roman Catholic Church, they also believe, and here's a a danger in this belief, they believe that they actually produce the Bible. And because they believe they produce the Bible, uh, therefore in many instances what they say is to give authority to Scripture, not the other way around. We have to be careful. Listen, the Bible has everything it needs inside of its covers. We, we need to be careful about adding or subtracting from God's word. But you see, we as the Bible-believing people that I hope and pray we are, we do not consider the church to have authority over God's word. We actually believe at this church that God's word has authority over the church. See, that's the way it should be. See, God's word is to take precedence and priority over the words of what I would say or the Pope or any other confession, any other council or creed. What they say may be good and it may be uh, a viable teaching if it's coming from God's word, but it should never usurp the word of God. And so, yes, the B-I-B-L-E, it's the book for me, and I hope it's the book for you. Not only is tradition winning the battle, but what I'm afraid of is uh, there are many churches where experience has become the authority. 
If you go into many churches, you'll, you'll uh, get an experience like none other before. And I'm not condemning different, different methodologies. But certain churches you go into, and it's, and it's more... It's more about this, it's more about how I feel, it's more about uh, the action of doing something than it is actually about Jesus Christ. And so we have to be very careful about experience. And in fact, uh, this is the case when I look at many charismatic groups. In fact, if you do a study of uh, charismatic groups, there's a conflict that essentially arises between the Word of God and what people experience in those environments. And when it conflicts, what I see and what many people would assert is that the experience actually wins out over the Word of God. The answer is typically something like this. If you confront somebody about that, they'll say, well, I know what the Bible says, but I also know what I saw, and I also know what I experienced. Let me give you an example of something. In fact, turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 1, because uh, I think about the Apostle Peter. And certainly if Peter were alive today, uh, in fact, somebody recently asked me this question, do you think that if the Apostle Peter were alive today, he would be a charismatic? I would say, I don't think so. You say, well, hold on a second. Maybe he would, because, I mean, after all, he spoke in tongues. He healed people. He prophesied. He had many, many incredible experiences. But do you think Peter would have placed more emphasis? And I'm asking this rhetorical question. But do you actually think that Peter would have placed more emphasis on his experience than he would have the Word of God? I would say no. And actually, in 2 Peter chapter 1... Peter actually answers this question for us. And let me flip over there very quickly. In chapter 1, notice with me verses 16 and following. The Bible says, this is Peter writing to those dispersed uh, believers all around. He says, for we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. Now, Peter is actually referencing here his personal experience on the mount of transfiguration. That is when Peter, James, and John were, were, were given a glimpse of the glory of God. In fact, you find that in Matthew chapter 7, Mark 9, and Luke 9. And what we find in that passage is that for a very brief moment, these individuals, these three disciples, are given a glimpse of who Jesus really was as the glory of his divinity actually burst through his humanity. But you know, Peter was overwhelmed by this experience. In fact, if you go to Mark chapter 9, let's show that up there. If you go to Mark chapter 9, he's so overwhelmed, he gets an idea. Anybody ever read this passage? He gets an idea. He's like overwhelmed. He's like, oh my goodness, this is amazing. Let's notice what he says. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. I guess it was good for him to be there. He says, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles. He says, for thee. He says, we're going to give you one. (laughs) One for Moses and one for Elias. He's, He's referencing Elijah. For he wist not what to say, for they were sore afraid. 
But notice what happens. And there was a cloud that overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son. What are the next words? It says, hear him. You see, Peter's experience, and listen, let's cut Peter some slack. Let's say all of us take a trip up to the Mount of Transfiguration. I guess we would have gotten a little carried away too. I guess we would have been excited of the experience of it all. So I want to cut Peter some slack. But Peter gets so carried away with this experience, he comes to a faulty theological conclusion. Do you see it? He says, let's make three tabernacles. Let's put you, Moses, and Elijah on the same playing field. But folks, I want to remind you, Jesus, Moses, and Elijah are not on the same playing field. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He is very God of very God, the creator of the world. In fact, I love John chapter 1 and verse 1. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Verse 2, all things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything that was made. My days as Gabriel from Gabriel's song coming back to haunt me. In verse number 14 of John chapter 1, the Bible reminds us, here we go, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Notice back in verse number 7. Notice verse 7 of chapter Mark chapter 9. It says, this is my beloved son, hear him. God says nothing about Moses or Elijah. He says, you are just allowed to see the divine glory of Jesus burst through his humanity and your first conclusion from that experience is to put him on the same level as Moses and Elijah? I think not. God says, you hear him. He says, you hear him. Listen, listen to him because what he has to say, Peter, is more important to you than the experience that you just were allowed to have. We have to be careful about tradition and experience. Go back to 2 Peter chapter 1. You say, well, why did we go to 2 Peter chapter 1? Because I want you to continue reading in verse number 19 and following. Notice what Peter says. After verse number 18 concludes where he says, and this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount, verse number 19, we have also a more sure word. We have a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well that ye take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. A more sure word of what? Listen, the, the obvious answer from Peter is that it's more sure than his experience. He references the Mount of Transfiguration, verse 16, 17, 18, and then he talks about, but we have a more sure word of prophecy. This is just one example, but you and I can be sure that the good old B-I-B-L-E a.k.a. God's Word, is more trustworthy than any experience that you and I could ever have. Oh, please, don't get me wrong. You should remember and reflect back to that point when the Lord Jesus Christ came into your life and changed your life and started to do a new work. 
But the Bible says, therefore, be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. See, that's the getting in point. Then the word of God starts to do its work in our lives as it transforms us as new creations in Christ Jesus. But, you know, sadly, not only tradition and experience are winning the battle in the so-called churches of today, but here's another sad reality, and it's running rampant. It is running rampant. It's this idea that human reasoning takes precedence. Human reasoning is actually the authority in many churches. In fact, this would be the position of what is known as liberalism, or many call it actually modernism, and this school of thinking actually rejects any belief or behavior that is based on the authority of Scripture completely or solely. So what they say, they insist that all beliefs must pass through kind of like a, it's like a coffee filter. They say that all beliefs, all practices must pass through the filter of human reasoning. And here's the danger, folks. They will go into Scripture and they don't discount all the Bible, only some of it. You want to know what parts they discount? They discount the miracles, They discount the supernatural because, you see, um, uh, a humanistic mindset says, if you can't prove it to me, if I can't reason it out in my mind, I mean, come on, the fishes and the bread fed 10,000, 15,000, or whatever you want to estimate, that doesn't make sense. It must be false. Um, Jesus dying on the cross, I mean, come on, and then he rose again through... There's a lot of danger in this type of theology, but it's running rampant. Listen, if one verse of this book is not true, then I have to assert, how can you trust any of the other verses? Either we believe that God's word is true, or we don't. Listen, if you don't believe that it's true, then don't, don't, don't cookie cut Don't say, I believe John 3.16 because it's good for me, and I don't believe this verse because it steps on my toes. See, we have to take God's word for what it is. Listen, let me remind you of that old saying, when God says it, that settles it, whether you or I believe it. When God says it, that settles it, whether you and I believe it. Listen, when the Bible says Lot's wife looked back to Sodom and Gomorrah and was turned into a pillar of salt, I believe that's exactly what took place. When God says, when the Bible says that God spoke to Moses out of the burning bush, I believe that's exactly what took place. When Moses and the Israelites walked across the Red Sea as on dry ground, the Bible tells us of that story, I just have to believe that it took place. Listen, when the Bible tells me that God fed the children of Israel for 40 years from manna from heaven, I have to believe it. When I look at Scripture and I see that Balaam's donkey, how crazy a story is that? When I, be, when I read that a donkey spoke to Balaam, I just have to believe that God did it. When I look, and I was even talking to Donnell and, and Chris, yes, remember we were talking about uh, uh, the Ethiopian eunuch, they're out in the desert. When I see that they walked down in the water and they got baptized in the middle of a desert where there should be no water, I just have to believe it. When the eunuch looks up and Philip's not there anymore, I have to believe it. 
When I look in Joshua 6, and the Bible tells me that the Israelites, they march around, you know the story, they march around the walls of Jericho for seven straight days, and then on the last day they blow the trumpet and they start shouting such that the walls come down, I have to believe it. When the Bible says that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were delivered from the fiery furnace, not only were they not burned, but they didn't even smell like smoke. I just have to believe it. When the Bible tells me that Daniel was in the lion's den, woo, and he came out of the lion's den, I I don't know, it's crazy. You're like, okay, we get it. You believe the Bible. When I look at Scripture, okay, we'll continue. When I look at the Scripture and I see that Jonah was swallowed by a whale, how crazy of a story. Excuse me, I'm sorry. A great fish. He was swallowed by a great fish and then he lived in the belly for three days and then that great fish spit him up on the shore. I just have to believe it. I don't have time to go on. People are going to get mad. Oh, yes, folks, the B-I-B-L-E. Yes, that's the book for me. I stand alone on the Word of God, the B-I-B-L-E, and I hope and pray that you do as well. Look back at our original text. I want you to see verse 7, 8, and 9 as we prepare to close this thing down. We've got to be careful of tradition. We've got to be careful of experiences. I love experiences. But they'll leave you wanting. We have to be careful that we don't get too smart for God. Yeah, we need to seek godly wisdom. And that's a different message. But when we start to think we're wise in our own eyes, we're in trouble. And by the way, that's where we're at. That's where this country's at. That's where this world is at. We've gotten so smart, we think we know more about God's word than God. Notice back, this is a very encouraging passage of scripture in Psalm 19. It really is. Notice what verse 7, 8, and 9 say. The Bible says in verse 7, it says, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right. Rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. What I see very quickly, and notice with me, if you're a note taker, you better be on, on speed dial with your hands. Because notice verse 7, 8, and 9. There are six titles asserted to God's word, and there are six traits. And you say, oh my gosh, are these long points? No, they're not. Look at verse number 7. The first one says, the law of the Lord. The first title to God's word is the law of the Lord. Listen, the law is the Hebrew word for Torah, which essentially means instruction. So it says the instruction of the Lord is perfect. Uh, It's through the Bible that God dispenses his divine wisdom, his divine instruction to you and I. His teaching is perfect, the Bible says, and that word perfect means that it is whole, it is complete, it is sufficient. And in fact, in that Hebrew word, it entails comprehensiveness. What does it mean to be comprehensive? See, this idea of God's word being perfect and this idea of comprehensive, it means that God's word covers everything God wants us to know. If he wanted me to know how the great fish swallowed up Jonah, he would have told me. I don't need to know that. All I need to know is that it happened. 
All I need to do is put my faith and believe that it happened. So it's comprehensive. Like I said earlier, nothing needs to be added or subtracted. Notice the words. I love this. The law of the Lord is perfect. And what does it do? It converts the soul. The Bible is so comprehensive. It's so complete that it has the ability to transform my life. And it has the ability to transform your life. It has the ability to transform your family and your friends, your neighbors, and your co-workers' lives. But they got to believe it. Verse number seven, the testimony of the Lord. Testimony actually means witness. If I ask you to give testimony of the Lord, and we do that on Lord's Supper nights, people stand up and they give a testimony. They give a witness of what the Lord is doing in their life. And so when we speak of the testimony of the Lord, it actually means witness. And what it's doing here, it's, it's, it's emphasizing the fact that the word of God actually gives witness to the God of the word. The word of God gives witness to God himself. And so the testimony of the Lord uh, is, is sure. I like to always say, people say, well, how can I know the mind of God? Read more of the mind of God. You want to know more of the mind of God? Say, you say, well, you always read that passage in Philippians 2, 5, where it says, therefore, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. You got to have the mind of Christ. The only way you're going to get it is to read the mind of Christ and get into his word. Listen, it is sure, the Bible says, the testimony of the Lord is sure. It means it's reliable, it's worthy. Remember I said at the outset, God's word is infallible. That word infallible means without error. I also said that God's word was not only inspired, as we read in 2 Peter 1, but I also said that God's word was inerrant. Do you know what the word inerrant means? It means that it is incapable of being wrong. Listen, the testimony of the Lord is sure. Verse 8, notice the statutes of the Lord, they are right. Statutes are remind us that God's word includes not only his, his, word, his commandments, but his principles and his guidelines. When we apply these statutes to our lives, it brings joy. I think of Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, in Jeremiah 15, verse 16. The Bible says, thy words were found, and I did eat them, and thy word was unto me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. The Bible shows us the right path to follow. And so we need to be careful how we walk. We need to live according to the word. Verse number eight, also the commandment of the Lord. The Bible says it's pure. When we think of God's commandments, we refer, they refer to his authority. I think uh, about our culture. What's happened in our culture is, you know this, the Ten Commandments have become the Ten Suggestions. The Ten Commandments have become the Ten Suggestions because of the mindset of our culture. And the reason that's taken place, folks, is because our culture resists at every level. They resist biblical authority. We got people, we, we, we got, excuse me, we got politicians telling the church how the church needs to bend to their thoughts. This is a problem. Do we not see this as a problem? God's word is our authority, not what some man has said. We have to be careful, folks. God created us, and since he created us, I just kind of think he has every right to tell us how to live. The Bible says it's pure. His commandments are pure, which means they're clear, they're concise, they're clean. And the sad thing is, I believe that most Christians, they can understand God's word because we have the Holy Spirit residing within us. The problem isn't that we don't understand it. The problem is that we don't apply it. 
God's word is pure. Uh, Verse number nine, the fear of the Lord. The Bible says it's clean. But why would we see the word fear being asserted as a title referencing the word of God? I believe it's because those people, you and I, who respect and revere the word of God are also going to be those same people who will respect and revere the very God of the word. See, it's like I say, if you love God, you're going to love his word. And if you tell me you love his word... There's no way you can love his word without loving God. It's pretty clear to me. But the Bible says it's clean. In other words, it's free from imperfections. It's timeless. No matter what generation we're talking about, whether it's the the Z generation, uh, generation Z, generation Y, generation X, baby boomer, or whatever you fall into by your age, it doesn't matter. The word of God is able to to be applied, it is adequate for every need in life. In fact, 1 Peter 1, chapter uh, 1, verse 23, reminds us of this incorruptible word of God, and it says that it lives, it liveth and abideth forever. That verse tells us. In Isaiah 40, verse 8, the Bible says, the grass, grass withereth and the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Notice the last thing. It says the judgments of the Lord. (laughs) The beautiful thing about this very last one is it ascribes two traits to it. It says they're true and righteous altogether. Listen, the supreme judge of the universe has given you and I divine verdicts from which we can take and apply into our lives. The Bible is complete. It's sufficient. It's authoritative. It is our source of all truth. The problem is we don't read it much. But you know, Psalm 119, verse 160 says, Thy word is true from the beginning, and every one of thy righteous judgments endureth forever. And when we put all these traits together, we have a Bible that is complete, a Bible that can be relied upon, a Bible that will guide our steps. We have a Bible that will abide forever. We have a Bible that is all-sufficient and authoritative. Now I close by reminding you of one passage that I showed last week when I talked about worship, and that's 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. Notice what the Bible says. It says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly or completely furnished unto all good works. And if you remember what I said last week, it was on a different message topic. But go back to verse 16, if you will, guys. Last week, notice the words there in verse 16, where it says, it is profitable for doctrine. Remember last week I said doctrine means what's right. I started this message by saying our doctrine and our distinctives are critical. And the most important distinctive we have as Bible-believing Christians is of the authority of God's word in our life. Notice it says, and is profitable, that all scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, what is right, for reproof, what is not right, for correction, how to get right, and then also for instruction in righteousness, which means how to stay right. How do we know what's right? How do we know not what's right? How do we know how to get right? And how can we understand how to stay right? From the B-I-B-L-E. Oh, yes, that's the book for me. 
As for me and my house, we're going to stand alone on the Word of God. Yes, the B-I-B-L-E. It's the book for me. It's perfect. It's sure, the Bible says. It is right. It is pure. It is clean. And it is altogether true and righteous. I want to encourage you. Recommit yourself. Recommit yourself today to the authority of Scripture. Come before the throne of God's grace and mercy and say, God, revive in my heart this desire to be in your word. God, do something in my life that only you can do because of your word. If you're here today and you've never trusted Christ, I encourage you to understand that God's word is the only way that we know about a Jesus who died on the cross for our sins. Sure, we could go back and study history. God's word has it all covered right there for us. Thank you so much for listening. For more information about our ministry, please go to battlefieldbaptist.org or follow us on Facebook or Twitter. See you next time.